explain. What's that mean? The daddy would explain. Then the pastor got up to preach, and he ceremoniously took off his watch and laid it down, and the boy said, Daddy, what's that mean? And he said, it doesn't mean a blooming thing. (laughs) But don't worry. We'll get out on time. Anyway, good to have you with us, and uh, appreciate again your braving the elements out. They're supposed to turn to rain this afternoon, which is going to make it fun to shovel, huh? And then uh, snow again tonight, tomorrow, and all through Tuesday. So we we need it. We can't complain, I guess. Um, Dave Baker wanted me to thank all of you that are in charge of ministry areas who have turned in your budget requests. And also a gentle reminder, if you haven't, you will get the same amount next year or maybe less, so you need to get those turned in. Um, we're trying to get a budget together, and then by uh, into early May, I think, is when we're going to have our uh, annual meeting and work through all of that. So another thing, uh, if you haven't seen it, there's a note in the bulletin about it, Julie McDonald has written a little booklet on prayer, and if you know Julie, you know that that's her thing, is prayer. And I think you'd find it helpful. It's available on the mission table, I think, and um, you can even get a cheaper version online on the ebook thing. So I encourage you to pick that up and read it. And she also wrote a um, humorous little account of her colorful brother-in-law, and some of his escapades, and then weaved it into a gospel uh, message. So that's available back there, too, I think. Uh, We want to pray for Tim and Flower Darby, and uh, they just got back from the U.K., and uh, they're going to share about their trip next Sunday night, I think, and the Talbots will be sharing with them about the Ukraine. But um, they... Live and work here, but are involved full-time, or almost full-time, I think, with OM, Operation Mobilization, which is a mission organization that uh, was founded in the late 1950s and now has thousands of missionaries all over the world, some in very um, difficult places. And um, they were just over there. They do online training, and uh, they'll be sharing about their time over there next Sunday night, so encourage you to put that on your calendar, and trust the weather will be a little more conducive next Sunday than this. Uh, we want to bow then in prayer, and um, uh, going to pray for Kuliakon again. If you weren't here, I think I explained it last week. That's, that's a ministry that Ed Young started many years ago down in Mexico, where they uh, all of a lot of the native people from all over the country come there to harvest the crops, and um, they're kind of sitting ducks for the gospel because they're sitting around in these migrant camps at night, and they don't have anything else to do. So the workers, Christian workers, can go around and uh, play little gospel cassettes, or they aren't cassettes anymore; they're electronic, some device. And when they hit on their native language, those people just light up because they've never heard a recording in their language. And there are like 200 languages all over Mexico. And so through that, um, they've been able to share the gospel with many. And um, they uh, play the Jesus film, that sort of thing. Churches have been... um, 
found it all over Mexico through that as people come to faith and then return to their village with the good news. So we want to pray for that. So let's bow in prayer and then we'll look together here into God's word. Dear Father, we thank you for the moisture that we desperately need in this part of the country. And I pray that everyone would be safe on the roads and the sidewalks and especially be with the elderly and those who need help. I ask, Lord, that you would um, uh, give us opportunities in our neighborhoods to be of help to others and through that to be a witness for Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would move in our city with revival and that the gospel would bring many to genuine saving faith. I lift up the work on the NAU campus and pray that you would reach out there to many students, especially international students who are um, here for a brief time in this country, and that we would see many of them coming to faith. I would ask, Lord, that you would work in and through our schools with Christian teachers and students to be a witness, and uh, at work, wherever we are, that we would be a light for Christ in our community. We pray for our nation, which needs revival, that you would sweep our entire country with a return to the gospel. And uh, we lift up our leaders and pray that they might repent of their sin and trust in Christ. Short of that, that they would guide our country in ways that would preserve our religious freedom, that would pass laws that would protect our families. We pray for our soldiers, that you would protect them and bring them home soon, and uh, would ask that you would work revival among our troops and that their families would be preserved and safe. We pray that our families here in this community would be a point of light again and that our homes would radiate the love of Christ I would ask that you would protect our children from the many evil influences that could bring them down and that they would all grow up to love and serve and follow you and that they may uh, found Christian homes of their own. I would pray, Lord, for our world as it's a mess and ask that you would intervene in Syria and Iraq and stop the slaughter and the bloodshed and the destruction of this evil ISIS movement, either by converting many in the movement and showing them the evil of their ways. Um, I pray that there would be a, a sweeping backlash against them among the Muslim world where many Muslim people would see that that's where their religion really originated and where it goes if you follow it correctly and that there would be many millions of Muslims turning to Christ through this. And I pray for all the poor Christians who, who have been persecuted, lost loved ones, lost property, who are living in dire uh, poverty and refugee camps, that you would comfort them, strengthen them through your spirit and your word, and provide for their needs through the body of Christ. We would ask, Lord, for the same situation in Nigeria with Boko Haram, that it would be turned back against the enemy and result in many millions of Muslim people coming to faith in Jesus. 
I pray for the work of Operation Mobilization. Thank you for their faithful workers, some of them in these hard places. And pray, Lord, that through Tim and Flower's efforts, they would be equipped for ministry and that that movement would uh, continue and grow in their witness. We ask, too, for the work down in Mexico and Culiacan, that the gospel would go forth there and scatter throughout all of uh, all of Mexico and uh, give the camp operators open hearts to allow the teams to come into the camps. And I know the enemy would like to stop that work, so I pray that you would... Um, allow them in the camps and to bear witness of Christ that many would be saved. We pray for those in our body who need healing, that your hand would be on them and that in their weakness they would trust in your strength, that you would use each situation to be a witness for Christ. We pray for families that need work, that you would provide for those struggling with problems, that they would see Christ in a deeper way as the answer to their problems, that you would be glorified in and through us. We come now to your word and pray, Father, that you would equip us through it, that you would use us as witnesses in this community with the good news of Christ, for Jesus' sake. Amen might mention Myron was going to give an update on the equestrian property, but he couldn't get out this morning due to the weather, so we'll do that soon. A brief update is it's been subdivided, so we have four lots now for sale um, across the top of the property there and then trying to sell the main equestrian property separately. So please keep that in your prayers. And... um, (coughs) One other thing I was going to mention and forgot was uh, I had an email. Some of you probably got it, too, from Casey Lundgren this morning. And uh, as you may know, they rented a large house near Cal State Fullerton so they could take in foreign students. And today he's baptizing one of them uh, by the name of Mohammed. So that tells you where he's coming from. So great day to rejoice in how the Lord has brought this one Islamic background man to faith in Christ, so just thought you'd rejoice to hear that news as well. Well, we're going to be in John 16 and uh, pick up a message if you didn't. Hopefully, it'll be up here, the verses, if we don't have a power outage as we did the last hour, and uh, the verses are all in the, in the printed message. And so feel free to grab one now if you'd like. If you didn't get one, there should be an outline on your bulletin. And the messages are also on the church website. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of John 16. Jesus is preparing the, the 11 for after his departure, which will happen that night as he is arrested. He says, These things I have spoken to you, So that you may be kept from stumbling. They'll make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming uh, for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes you may remember that I told you of them. 
These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. There are two unpopular themes in modern evangelical Christianity. One is the need to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And another is the certainty of God's judgment. Rather than suffering, our focus, I'm afraid, as an American church, is on how Christianity can help you have a happy, successful life. And I agree that the Bible, when followed, does help us with our personal problems. It helps us with our marriages. It helps us to be able to do well in our jobs. It helps us to rear our children and all of those kinds of things. And I'm not downplaying that. But the Bible also teaches a difficult truth. Paul speaking to some fairly recent converts in Acts 14.22, said, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or he said also to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer or will be persecuted. Jesus said, as you know, that all of his followers must take up their cross in order to follow him. And that didn't mean you put a little thing around your neck with a gold cross on it. It was an implement of slow, tortuous death. It meant you must be willing to suffer with me if you follow me. In its extreme form, the de-emphasis on suffering has veered off into a heretical teaching And that is that it is always God's will for you to enjoy financial prosperity and healing from all your diseases. And if you don't, then something must be defective with your faith because you're supposed to believe, claim it by faith, and then all of the riches, material riches, and all of the health are supposed to follow. Regarding God, our emphasis is decidedly on his love and grace and not on his judgment. There are many who would go so far as to say that because God is love, no one will suffer in hell. In fact, that's the theme of a book called Love Wins by Rob Bell, who was a megachurch pastor, and um, he's now on Oprah Winfrey's program, but In that book, he argues that a loving God would certainly not punish people in an eternal hell. And while that book was rightly denounced as as heretical, it does resonate with many people who like that theme because we would rather focus on God as love, not on God as a God of wrath and judgment. 
So, that to say, Jesus' words here in our text are not going to be uh, on the popularity list in American Christianity in our day. He is preparing the disciples and through them preparing us for what we will face after he goes again to the Father. The world is often going to hate us, but he's showing here that our task is to witness in the power of the Spirit to this hostile world concerning three themes, sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, John MacArthur, in a sermon on this text, had a helpful insight, and that is how that in the upper room, Christ promises to counter many of the problems that we're going to encounter as we go out as witnesses in this evil world. Jesus says, the world hates you, but I love you. He says, the world is your enemy, but I'm your friend. The world's going to give you trouble and anxiety, but I give you my peace. Uh, The world may cause you sorrow, but I give you my joy. The world may kill you, but I give you eternal life. Uh, The world is under Satan's power, but you will have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The first thing that Jesus says here in verses 1 through 4 is that to witness in this hostile world without stumbling... You need to face the difficulty of the task, and that is you will be persecuted and you may even be killed. Uh, He said these things, he says in verse 1, to the disciples to keep them from stumbling, or the ESV translates from falling away. The Greek word is an interesting word. We get our word scandal from it. Scandalon is the word, but it was used of a bait trap. Um, We have them today. I tried to trap a squirrel in my backyard, and I got a skunk instead. But you know the idea. You put the bait inside the cage, and the animal goes in, sets off the trap, and can't get out. And that's the idea of this, that they would be surprised when they go out with this good news that Jesus is the Savior, and they expect people to respond, and instead they get slammed. They might be taken by surprise. But their task and ours is to go to this pleasure-oriented, self-seeking world, and we have a message that the holy God is going to judge all sinners, but that he has provided the way of escape through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not going to, to meet with people responding positively across the board. Uh, you remember when Noah was told to prepare the ark because judgment was coming. Uh, He didn't get any takers to join him on the ark. He was probably laughed to scorn, you know, being crazy. Uh, Lot, whom Peter calls righteous Lot, when he was told to flee Sodom, he pled with his future sons-in-laws to join him, and they laughed at him and thought he must be joking. Surely God isn't going to judge this place, and yet God did. But if you expect that everybody in this hostile world is going to welcome your message about the judgment that God is bringing uh, with open arms, then you're going to be in for stumbling. You're going to be surprised and taken aback. Sometimes we are surprised when that persecution comes not from out there, but from within, from the religious world. I've known many pastors who have left the ministry 
because they were attacked, not from the world, but from the church, from people in the church. And that surprised me at first when I was in ministry. I was kind of prepared for it to come from outside, but then when I caught flack from people within, you begin to say, what is going on? But Jesus indicates that in verse 2. He says, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. And the hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. You may, in that last part, picture the Apostle Paul. He thought by being a zealous Jew, persecuting Christians, rounding them up, taking them to prison, and having them executed, he was actually doing a service to God. And then when he got converted and the Jews persecuted him, he found out what that was like. It was turned back on him from the religious people. Uh, Centuries later, the Roman Catholic Church, about the 12th century or 13th century, instituted the Inquisition. And they began rounding up heretics, people who preached the gospel, and torturing them and killing them. And that went on for many centuries. Uh, But religion has always been a major perpetrator of persecution. And that's, of course, going on in the Middle East even at this hour. Jesus pinpoints the heart of the problem in verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father, or me. The key to enduring persecution is, of course, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, he gives us a reason that we can trust him, and that is he knows the future. Uh, He knows the trials that we're going to face, and he knows that he warns us in advance, it's going to happen to you. And when it does, just remember that I told you about it. Jesus didn't tell them about this at the beginning uh, because he was with them and he was the lightning rod where he caught the flack, but now he's leaving. And so uh, they will be catching the brunt of the opposition. But the Lord speaks these prophetic words so that we'll all be forewarned and therefore forearmed when it happens. It's not going to be easy to be a faithful witness to Christ in a hostile world. The second point that Jesus makes is the motivation then for why would we want to do this? Um, And that is to, to witness to a hostile world, you have to focus on the Lord's glory and not on your own needs. And that's the point, I believe, of verses five and six. He says, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. Now, you may not see immediately, well, how does that relate to the Lord's glory? So let me explain that to you. I think what's going on here is the disciples were not focused on the fact that the Lord Jesus was going to return to heaven. He was going to take up the glory that he had laid aside when he came to this earth. He was going to be seated at the right hand of the Father in power and glory over every name that is named, over all a dominion on, in heaven and on earth. Instead, their focus is on their own sorrow. You're leaving us? Really? You're leaving us. And so their focus isn't on Jesus' kingdom purpose and the great commission that he's going to give to them, but rather it's on their own feelings. Now, at first glance, Jesus' words there in verse 5, none of you 
lost the power there. None of you asked me, where are you going? Seems to contradict John 13, 36. Uh, There, Peter had said those very words, Lord, where are you going? Also in John 14, 5, Thomas had said, Lord, we don't know uh, where you're going. But the point is, neither man was really asking the question sincerely to get the answer, but they were rather focused on their own hurt, their own loss at Jesus going away. And so Jesus is saying, in effect here, none of you is really interested in me and my kingdom and my purpose and where I'm going and why I'm going there. But instead, you're just overwhelmed with sorrow because of your own uh, loss over my leaving. Uh, Dr. Carson, in his commentary, gives a helpful analogy of a little boy and his dad where the dad's promised to take the boy fishing And then at the last minute, there's an emergency at work, and the dad has to go to work. And the little boy complains by saying, Dad, where are you going? Well, he's not really interested in what are all the problems you're facing at work, and, uh, you know, what's going on so that I can pray for you. His focus is on himself, and he's just expressing his own disappointment over the father's departure. And so the disciples here are just self-absorbed in their own loss over Jesus leaving them because they didn't have the big picture. They weren't focused on Jesus is returning to the right hand of the Father. He's entrusting the Great Commission to us. He's giving us his spirit so that we can go out as witnesses. That's not their focus. And the application for us, of course, is if we want to be effective witnesses in this hospital, on our own feelings, on our own issues, we have to say there's a greater purpose. The Lord left us here for his glory to seek his kingdom, to see the gospel go to all people. And if we're persecuted, then his glory should be our aim. Now, we can't accomplish that task in our own power, and so the Lord goes on to talk to them about the Holy Spirit. And the third point that's made in verses 7 through 11 is that to witness to this hostile world, you have to join the Holy Spirit in his witness uh, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I believe Jesus' words in verse 7 would have startled the apostles. He says, but I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Uh, You've probably thought sometimes, as I have, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have been on earth when Jesus was here and to be able to sit there with the multitude on the feeding of the 5,000 and hear Jesus teach and see his miracles, and certainly it would have been wonderful. But Jesus here makes this startling claim, you've got it better. You've got it better because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And he lives within all of us to comfort us, to strengthen us, encourage us, to empower us for witness for Christ. And as we saw last time at the end of chapter 15, the Spirit comes to bear witness of Christ. But as it says here, I'm going to send the Spirit to you and he will bear witness. So, The Spirit bears witness to the world through the followers of Jesus as he indwells us, the church. Now, this verse 
is a hinge verse in the history of God's redemptive purpose. And we saw it first hinted at back in John chapter 7 when Jesus said, the one who believes in me out of his innermost being are going to flow these rivers of living water. And then John explains in John 7, 39, but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And again, in John 14, 16 and 17, Jesus told the disciples, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Notice the change. He's with you now but he will be in you permanently. And that change happened, as you probably know, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended on the church. And as the Lord made clear after the resurrection, a major role for the power of the Spirit in believers is that we would be his witnesses. Acts 1.8, Jesus told them right before his ascension, but you will receive power, When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem uh, and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, in our text, we need to understand four things. First of all, we need to understand what does Jesus mean when he says the Spirit will convict the world? And then the other three are what does it mean when he convicts them concerning sin? concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. First of all, he says the Holy Spirit then will convict the world. World obviously doesn't mean every person who has ever lived, because that's just not true. There have been many people, still many, who have lived and died and never heard the name of Jesus, and they were not convicted of their sin to repent and trust in Christ. So world refers to the unbelieving world, Jew and Gentile in general. It means um, everyone without distinction, not everyone without exception. In other words, uh, the Spirit is going to convict people, unbelieving people is the idea. Now the word convict is a legal term. It means to expose or to convince It was used in a courtroom situation where an attorney would present his case in such a way that it would expose the wrongdoing of his opponent and it would convince people that his case was true. Uh, Dr. Ryrie explains it this way in his Ryrie Study Bible. He says, to convict means to set forth the truth of the gospel in such a clear light that men are able to accept or reject it intelligently. In other words, to convince men of the truthfulness of the gospel. Uh, R.C. Trench, who wrote a, a study help called Synonyms of the Greek New Testament, uh, says this word means so to rebuke another with such effectual wielding of the victorious arms of the truth as to bring him, if not always to confession, at least to a conviction of his sin. Um, Let me give you some examples of how the word is used. 
In John 3.20, we saw it used in the sense of expose, where uh, Jesus said, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. It's that Greek word that means convicted or convinced or exposed. Uh, Jesus used the word in the sense of convict in John 8, 46, where he said, Which of you convicts me of sin? Nobody could convince everyone Jesus is a sinner because he lived a perfectly righteous life. The word is also used in the now, a noun that's related to this uh, verb is used in 2 Timothy 3.16 when it says the word of God is profitable for reproof. That word reproof is the same word. It means uh, the Bible convicts us of the sin in our lives by showing us where we fall short. And in the same regard, in 2 Timothy 4.2, where Paul talks about the job of a pastor is to preach the word, he tells Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And that word reprove is the same Greek verb. In Titus 1.9, it says that elders are to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And the word refute is the same, same word. And even though the word isn't used, I think we see an example of this on the day of Pentecost. When Peter preached and the 3,000 were saved, uh, they were convicted of their sin, of crucifying Jesus. And it says they were pierced to the heart. So Peter's message, the Holy Spirit used it to penetrate their darkness to expose their sin, and they felt guilty for what they had done and were saved. Now, I need to add that conviction is not always effectual in terms of bringing a person to salvation. Sometimes it is. In other words, it's necessary for salvation, but it's not sufficient because God has to draw the person to Christ and The Holy Spirit has to impart new life, the new birth, as we saw in John chapter 3, for a person to be saved. But all truly saved people have been convicted, but not all convicted people get saved, if you follow what I'm saying. And so, uh, if you're saved, one mark of it is you begin a life of being convicted of your sin, where you see your sin in the Scripture God confronts you with it, you turn from it, you grow in Christ and grow in holiness in that way. I believe that that's one of the missing things in much evangelical presentations of the gospel in our day, is conviction of sin. Uh, We're really quick. You read through a little evangelistic booklet or go through a presentation with someone, ask them if they want to pray the prayer, They pray the prayer, and then you follow it up by assuring them, you prayed that prayer, you're good, you're you're going to go to heaven because you believed in Jesus, and there's not any sign that they've been convicted of their sin. If the Spirit is drawing them to Christ, they're going to be convicted. They're going to go, oh man, otherwise, why do they need Jesus? He's not just a little band-aid you put on or a self-help thing that you add to your life. He's the Savior, 
And what you're being saved from is the wrath of God because of your sin. And so we have to drive that home to people. Now, I realize that deepens over time. I'm far more convicted of my sin now than I was when I first started following Christ. In fact, I'm convicted of sins now that I didn't even know were sins back then. Things that just bother me now that I think, oh my, how could I have done that? Um, That's growth in holiness. But all I'm saying is there has to be some initial sense of, oh no, I am a sinner and I am rightly under God's condemnation and Jesus is the Savior. That has to take place in order for there to be genuine conversion. Without that, it's going to be superficial uh, where a person isn't truly convicted. I think we see an example of a man who had shallow conviction in King Saul in the Old Testament. And I cannot tell you that he was truly born of God. I don't think he was. He made a lot of God talk. And there's some evidence he was, but some he wasn't. But on one occasion, God commanded King Saul and his army to go and conquer the Amalekites. And he was supposed to slaughter off all of their sheep and oxen, all of their livestock. And uh, Samuel, the prophet, comes, and he hears some sheep bleeding, and he hears some goats, and he sees the cattle, and he says to Saul, you know, hey, what gives? And Saul makes this proclamation. He says, I've carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel keeps confronting him and saying, no, you haven't. Well, then Saul makes up an excuse, and he says, well, the people wanted to save some of the best of the animals for sacrifice. So he whitewashes over his disobedience, blaming the people and giving it a religious purpose. You know, they're going to use him for a good end. And Samuel persists in confronting Saul until finally Saul reluctantly admits that he sinned. But then he's quick to say, but please come back with me so that uh, the people will honor me in their presence. We don't want them to know that I've sinned. So it's a superficial thing. On the other hand, you see King David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he sinned with Bathsheba and killed her husband, and he confronted David, and David had a simple reply. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't dodge it. He didn't make excuses for it. And when God brought the consequences of his sin on him, he didn't shake his fist at God. He submitted to some very difficult discipline in his life. So the point is, conviction is necessary. When it happens, sinners can go different ways. Some of them react negatively and run from the light like a bunch of cockroaches trying to hide. Uh, Some of them react superficially like King Saul. Oh, well, okay, I was wrong, but it's not deep. And then genuine believers react as David did with genuine repentance. Now, the Holy Spirit then is going to convict of three things, of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. First, concerning sin. And Jesus says in verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Um, As I said, when the Spirit convicts you, you can run from the light or you can come to the light. And if you truly believe in Jesus, you begin a lifetime of conviction of sin because you do believe in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is identifying when he says, because they do not believe in me, he is identifying the root sin of all sins. Unbelief in Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? Because I predict if it were a nice day and there were people on the sidewalks and we went out and did a poll and went up to people and said, would you give me a list of sins? You might get murder, child abuse, uh, wife abuse, uh, I don't know, lying maybe, maybe adultery. Some people think that's okay, but most would say, no, that's sin. But I predict you would never hear somebody in their list of sins saying, not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just not a sin out there on the street. But Jesus says that's the sin. That's the root sin because all other sins stem from our lack of faith in Christ. If we truly believe Jesus is Savior and Lord, then we're going to live to please him. And whenever we sin, in practice, we're saying, nah, I don't believe in Christ. I believe in myself, and this is going to make me happy, and we go our own way. But when it comes to Judgment Day, those other sins may be used for degrees of punishment or good works for degrees of reward, but the issue between heaven and hell is one. Did you believe in Jesus Christ, or did you not? For example, say a guy falls overboard in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The issue is not, is he a pretty good swimmer? You know, I mean, he's lost out there. He's going to go under because nobody, not even the best swimmer in the world, can swim to shore from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And the issue really isn't, can't he swim at all? The issue is, is there a life preserver? And if you can get that life preserver to the guy... That's the issue. Will he take the preserver or not? And uh, the guy that swims might say, hey, no problem. I don't need the preserver. I'm a good swimmer. He's going to drown. And the other guy may say, oh, I don't deserve to be saved. I can't swim at all. Doesn't matter. Take the preserver. That's the issue. It's there in front of you. If you'll take it, you'll be saved. If you reject it, you're going to perish. And Jesus Christ is the life preserver that God has provided for sinners, for the world. And self-righteous people may say, hey, I don't need a Savior, thanks. I'm pretty good. They're going to perish. And others may say, I am just too much of a sinner to even have him consider saving me. But we're all that way if we knew it. None is worthy. That's why we're saved by grace. And if they take it, they will be saved. But either type and anybody in between that rejects the offer of salvation in Christ will be lost for one reason. They did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God because he is the issue. The second thing Jesus says the Spirit will convict the world of is righteousness. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. That means Jesus himself is the standard for righteousness. When he was on earth, you could look at Jesus and say, that's a righteous life. That's how God wants all people to live. And because Jesus lived the only sinless life, he's the only one who could die as a substitute for sinners. 
when the Father resurrected Jesus from the dead, he put his stamp of approval on Jesus' righteous life, on his obedient death, and now Jesus could ascend to the Father for one reason. He was righteous. If Jesus had any taint of sin, he could not have ascended to sit at the right hand of holy God. He would have been consumed like a moth in the flame. But he is there because he's righteous. And the Bible is clear that now God imputes the very righteousness of Christ to every sinner who trusts in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Romans 4, 5 explains that process. It says, Now to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, you notice, not the godly, but the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so the good news we have to proclaim to the world is, no matter how bad your sin And the worst problem is, no matter how good you are or think you are, you're a sinner, Christ will impute his perfect righteousness so that you can stand before God totally right, not in anything you've done, but in the righteousness of your substitute. But even the best of people, we have to tell them the news of Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And that's the hardest for the religious crowd. Which is why the religious crowd often persecutes those who proclaim the gospel the most. Because they're filled with pride over their self-righteousness. But we have the good news. If you'll repent of your righteousness. And repent of your sin. And trust in Christ. You will have his righteousness. And that's what makes us right with him. But then there's one other vital element in our message, and that's in verse 11. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment. Jesus says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. When sin and righteousness meet, judgment is the result. And it met at the cross with Jesus Christ. Satan is the ruler of this world, and we saw back in John 12, 31, that Jesus said the ruler of this world is now to be judged. Here he mentions it in the past tense as if it's a done deal. Uh, It's going to happen actually the next day when Jesus dies on the cross. But the point is, at the cross, Satan's doom was sealed. He was defeated. And all who are in his domain are under the same judgment that he is under. And yes, they're all free to roam around. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And everybody is uh, in his kingdom is living as if there's no judgment. But the Bible is clear, there is. John 3.18, we saw, said, He who believes in Jesus is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so our witness to this hostile world has to include, well, four elements, really. It has to include sin and righteousness and judgment. 
along with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message that we are to give. Christ is the only Savior for those who are in sin and fall short of his righteousness and are under God's judgment. I've always been intrigued when I read the book of Acts how the Apostle Paul witnessed to the Roman governor Felix. It's in Acts 24. You might remember the story. Felix was a a wicked Roman governor. And Paul didn't... And again, I'm not... I'm not saying it's not a useful tool. You can use it rightly. But he didn't whip out a four spiritual law booklet to him and say, you know, Felix, God really loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he offers you an abundant life. And I know you got some marriage problems, Felix, and Jesus will fix your marriage. And I know you got a lot of anxiety in your job and Jesus will give you peace and joy. Come to Jesus for all the benefits. You know what he talked to him about? It says in Acts 24, uh, verses 24 and 25, he talked to him about faith in the Lord Jesus, and he talked to him about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Self-control is another word for sin, (laughs) because he lacked self-control. He was just a reprobate Roman governor. And so Paul spoke to him about sin and righteousness, and judgment, and faith in the Lord Jesus. And Felix, it says, got really upset and nervous and sent him away and said, go away, and when I find time, I'll bring you back again. As far as we know, Felix never came to faith in Christ. But to be effective witnesses, we need to be ready. Not everybody's going to like our message, and so not everybody's going to like us. But if we're faithful, given that prospect, we should be motivated by the glory of the Lord and the fact that he is glorified when sinners come to faith. And so we uh, go to the world that is under sin and under God's judgment because they lack righteousness and under his judgment to come. And we proclaim the good news of Christ that whoever believes in him will be saved. And uh, that's our job to do in the power of the Spirit who indwells us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses, that we would not compromise the message, that we would zero in on people's need for a Savior because they are people under judgment, and that they cannot escape judgment by all the good works in the world because all have sinned and fall short of your perfect righteousness. And help us, Lord, to clearly present faith in Jesus Christ as the only remedy for our sin problem. And Lord, I ask that you would give us converts in this city, people coming to genuine faith in Jesus Christ because you used us in the power of your Spirit to tell them that good news. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close by 